0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic and perpetually sleep-deprived co-host, Dan Favalli. Dan, we're going to hop into a a mailbag today. I know we have a bunch of exciting questions. You've you've even been DM'd a few questions, which is uh, always a gratifying feeling that, that people care enough to ask in that method, even when we haven't sent out those shameless solicitations. So how's your ego doing today?
1: Oh, my ego is enlarged, engorged, absolutely enormous, as always. I am, as you mentioned, sleep-deprived. I still, I mean, you were just sick for a long time, but I'll say I feel fantastic post-COVID, except you know how much this is not a humble brag. I need my workouts. Like, I need them. They are my therapy. I feel like I've never worked out a day in my life now since I've started doing it again. It's, I think my first, I think I texted you the first time I worked out after COVID because I was so excited. I'm pretty sure I was operating on full excitement and adrenaline at that point because I felt fine. And I've wanted to die like five minutes in every time since. So that has me sad, but I love getting DM to mailbag questions. We actually have so many bank that one of them is now outdated, but we're gonna give them a shout out and rephrase the question because it had to do with the Cam Reddish Trey Young <laughs> pairing. <laughs> I um, feel
0: like we should also say that one of the questions that was DM to you is so good that we are not going to answer it because we're going to turn it into an entire episode.
1: Right. We're not even going to tease the question because we don't want to spoil the episode. I'll let the person know why we didn't answer it. But as always, I, we appreciate if we're getting DM questions. Um, it's been great. Howard. I love that's what I, I think I said this or even tweeted it. it. There's like, those are the things that warm my heart. We're unsolicited and unprompted people DM me with questions or just with something to say about the podcast. So you should probably rate review and subscribe to this podcast for we you get your podcast strongly support that. How do you feel? How are you doing?
0: I'm good. I, I was telling you before we started recording that uh, my wife and I have some ski lift tickets over the weekend. Um, you know, obviously going to be masked up even on the slopes and, trying to take every precaution, but it's, it's exciting to get out of a, a a house with a toddler running rampant through it in a Colorado winter when we don't really go outside much. So uh, I, I have something on the calendar to look
1: forward to, which is great. And you need it because you were not happy about the Cam Reddish trade. Should I have been? Well, all right, let's do it this way. We have a couple of questions on it. So I want to give the people their due who asked it. I'll run through those questions. Uh, we should first just go through the details of the trade. The Knicks sent Kevin Knox and a Charlotte Hornets first round pick, which is basically it's never going to convey with the protection protections. It will never be higher than number 15. If it conveys at all, I expect that Charlotte will be good enough for it to convey not this year, but in the next one or two years, I think it's protected through 2024. If I'm not mistaken, I looked that up really quick. Um, so the Knicks sent those to Atlanta for Cam Reddish, Solomon Hill, and Brooklyn's 2025 second round pick, uh, the questions we have on it, I want your general thoughts, but I think these Michael asked, Michael J asked, will Cam Reddish flourish with the Knicks? Another Michael asked, will Cam Reddish make the Knicks a better team? Analytically speaking, I am excited as a fan. So those were, those were the two questions I highlighted out of it. And before we really get into them a little bit, I do want your general thoughts on that trade because they were, yeah, and so but- far as your takes get spicy, they felt fairly spicy.
0: The general take is like, what is Atlanta doing here? I I think that if you evaluate this purely in terms of production, then they might have recouped somewhat reasonable value for Cam Reddish. But that's not really the lens through which we want to evaluate this because Reddish isn't going to turn 23 until September 1st. And if you watch him for any amount of time, you can see the potential just oozing forth. Is it consistent? No. Is it pretty? No. But it's there, and you know we have we have players coming into the league at this age. So he's been held back by injuries. He's been held back by the depth of the Atlanta rotation, which has prevented him from carving out a more significant role and learning through some of these mistakes. I mean, to this point in his career, he has yet to top twenty eight point eight minutes per game, which came last season in his thirty four games for Atlanta this season. 23.4 minutes per game so it's been difficult for him to fully realize that tantalizing potential because of circumstances beyond his control but for this player who was drafted number 10 overall in 2019 to get traded for what essentially amounts to nothing you know we're talking about what is eventually going to convey as a couple of second round picks and you're sending picks back in the other direction to new york as well and kevin knox who is not nearly as intriguing and most likely will not crack the Hawks' rotation. It's just baffling that they're willing to sell this low unless it's done in conjunction with subsequent moves, which we can't rule out to this point because Atlanta remains a a organization set up well to make some sort of consolidation trade. It has a number of pieces. We've heard the rumors about Ben Simmons interests uh, and you can throw out any number of other players who could make sense here, but it, it mostly to me just continues a trend of Atlanta treating its young players kind of weirdly. You now we we also heard this report uh, come out today and I, I, I can't for the life of me remember who it came from. Was it Jake Fisher? I think from Bleacher Report who said that uh, Clint Capella and Trey Young were the only players that the Hawks are not shopping. So is Anyeka Okonwu included in that? And if he is like, why hasn't he even been playing when Clint Capella hasn't been available. If you're not going to play him and you're going to trade him, then why didn't you go a different direction? Cough Tyrese Halliburton, cough back when he was selected. Like it, it just, to me, it continues just a strange trend of internal evaluation of Atlanta's own players.
1: I do agree with you. I think what's interesting here when looking at it from the Hawks perspective, it doesn't seem like his value is all that high around the league because there were the reports that the Lakers offered two seconds for him, which that's not even something you would offer as a joke, unless you thought that his value could fall that low. And you're looking at this pick from Charlotte, which is top 18 protected this year, top 16 protected next year, and then lottery protected for two seasons, taking us through 2025. And then it turns into two seconds. So it's, I've, I've thought about this now, I don't understand. This is not... I think people have talked about they're a little bit afraid of what it's going to cost to retain this roster. I'm sure they are.
0: The free that agency means, piece is big here. And I did not mention that in my rant, but that that a, does have to inform the decision a little bit.
1: It's also a little bit, but it also not a ton because he has another year left on his rookie scale. It's like they have a season to figure this out. And what was he going to command that you were so fearful? You'd make this move, in my opinion. See, if you think that a distant let's just estimate this let's say charlotte's pick conveys in 2024 what you're now saying is because that's not a pick you intend on keeping and using And if it is we need to talk about the hawks franchise you're saying that asset will be more valuable in a trade than cam reddish which i actually don't which is why i've i've tried to i still can't even put together coherent thoughts on this trade any more from New York's perspective, because I actually see the the line of thinking where this pick might be more valuable than Cam Reddish, just because you're looking at, he was unhappy in his role, wanted to do, do more with the ball in his hands. I, yes, we know about the game against Milwaukee in the playoffs last year. We know about the flashes, but like this is someone who has 174 turnovers for his career against 160 assists. It's not like he's shown a ton of off-ball creation. His mid-range shot selection is bad, and the percentages on his mid-range shooting are not pretty. Uh, he is. This I think you can say that about
0: his offense in general for the most yeah. part. I
1: mean, he's shooting thirty-seven plus percent from three this year, which is a big deal. But twenty-seven percent for mid-range this year, and his, you know, thirty percent of his shots are coming from there. That's not an insignificant amount. So, if you're the Knicks, I don't even want to get into the Knicks. I'm doing this from the Hawks' perspective first. I think you could talk yourself into being next year or even this summer, if that's when you were going to move Cam Reddish, what is, has more value? That, let's just say a 2024 first that will convey, let's even call it, let's say conveys in the bottom 10. Does that have more value than Cam Reddish who's about to make maybe between 12 and $18 million a year? I think that might appeal in trade packages to more teams. I get the youth aspect. I get what he can do defensively, but I haven't seen that from him This year, at least he just hasn't. I would disagree with that. I think
0: that the defense has still been there, but it's been tougher for him to look like he's excelling on the defensive end because the rest of the defense is such garbage around him, but just the difficulty of the matchups he's asked to, to go up against the, the roles that he's asked to face off against those to me are telling that he's the one entrusted with those responsibilities. The numbers don't necessarily bear it out where he's grading worse defensively. In terms of virtually every defensive metric that he has in either of his first two seasons with the Hawks. But I think that's in large part because the personnel, the inconsistency of availability this season, the the lack of cohesion with the lineup that should have featured so much continuity because so many pieces were brought back. All of those factors are work, working against him. But I th- I think you can still see the pieces, the the, the skill set is there.
1: I suppose. Uh, you've probably watched him more than I have this season. I just haven't really seen it to your point about the difficulty though, DeAndre Hunter is the only ro- rotation player on the Hawks that has spent more a larger share of his possessions guarding the number one option, and he has not been available for most of this season. That being said, you mentioned how the Hawks are treating their young guys in like this weird fashion. I think it's very clearly they decided maybe they were completely out on reddish, but they definitely decided that Herter and Hunter supersede mm-hmm. reddish long term. They made that I think they made that decision because it was it's obvious that Hunter if he stays healthy, is better for you than Reddish. I think they made that decision when they extended Kevin Herder, And
0: I think it's the right decision, but it was made prematurely. I It didn't so, have to be made at this stage.
1: I think I might be more TBD, like wait and see, past the trade deadline before really slamming them for this. Because my assumption is, you mentioned all this stuff about Onyeka Okungu and then even the hunter Herder things. They They need a consolidation trade at this mm-hmm. point. Like you have guys, John Collins, Cam Reddish, who are unhappy with their roles? You have someone like Onyeka Okongwu, but there's Clint Capella in front of him, and you do need to play John Collins at the five. There's Jalen Johnson is going to. There's a case for him to being groomed in the front court yep. moving forward. I this leads me to believe no insight here whatsoever because this is a team that has to go for it this season. I know Travis Schlank kind of shit all over them on the radio uh, a few few a week or whatever it was ago. But like you are still try, trying to compete this year. You have to do something at the trade deadline. My assumption here is now that in talking with teams and going after what I assume is like a 3-4 combo guy, they were higher on this first-round pick or a first-round pick over Reddish in a trade going back for that player. I'm sure they probably would prefer DeAndre Hunter. You can't really get Kevin Herter because of the poison pill. It just becomes too difficult to maneuver the, the outgoing and uh, in, inbound salary values. And that is my guess. My guess is we see this pick Rerouted in a trade, whether it's for Harrison Barnes, whether it's for Jeremy Grant, or something. See, the issue
0: I have with that though is that if you're going to go that route, make it a three-team deal instead of doing this as a separate piece without a guarantee of anything else happening. Because ultimately, if everything else falls through the cracks, if they're pursuing Ben Simmons, we have no idea what the fuck is going to happen there. If they're pursuing Harrison Barnes, guess what? So are a bunch of other teams. And if you can't make any of that happen, then all of a sudden you've turned a promising young player into a draft pick down the line that may or may not have more value to other teams. But you do know with 100% certainty that you are a struggling defensive team that desperately needs to improve on that side of the ball and you've downgraded on defense somehow.
1: My issue, my question
0: here then would be, If something gets made, if if some other move gets made, then yes, I think the evaluation of this trade changes dramatically, assuming that pick that was just acquired is, is used in that subsequent move. But until that happens, it's tough for me to accept this timeline.
1: So my devil's advocate play here would be, there's no guarantee that the Knicks would still have this pick had you waited. Because they need, if they want, this to me, and we'll get into them in a second, felt more like win now than a flyer once we get into it. Maybe they were going to turn around and, you know, they could have traded for Robert Covington and help get the Blazers under the tax or something. And I don't know that that would have cost them a first round pick, but they might not have wanted Cam Reddish. They probably also wanted to maximize the time he was with them because he is extension eligible this summer. And I think every game at this stage would count for them there. What other team then was giving you a first round pick for Cam Reddish? And it's not, I'm not asking you to tell me that team, but like, can you even think of right. a team off the top of your head that should have given a first round pick for Cam Reddish?
0: Not necessarily, but I I think that the timing still matters here because this trade happened on January 13th. The trade deadline is still about a month away and players' values ramp up when we're in closer proximity to the trade deadline because there's a greater sense of desperation. So if the Knicks are treating Reddish as a win-now move, which it certainly seems like they are, it feels like a reasonably confident assumption that there's going to be another team out there that would be willing to play the facilitation role by including, again, not just a first-round pick, but a heavily protected first-round pick that might turn into two seconds down the line to get Reddish while facilitating a bigger move for Atlanta.
1: I the, think timing, was, the timing just feels so off to me. I think it got to a point where they were just concerned that he wasn't that he might have not tanked his value. If he but was going
0: exactly. to tank his value by being a malcontent, by seeing the performance drop even more, then there's your reasoning in and of itself.
1: Well, I, th- I think the other thing here is that basically since Thanksgiving, he's been at sub 40% from two. And if they can figure out... I would
0: say that's been the case since like 2016.
1: But um, and you look at there, so you look at his on-off splits for for his career. He is not he's shooting over forty percent from two for his career. Just FYI. But uh, I think when you look at his on-off splits as well, I'm not sure teams are even putting stock in this. The Hawks have essentially just never been better when he's on the floor for the most part. Mm -hmm. And I do think a lot of that has to do with lineup context. And again, you go throughout his career, look at the defensive matchup data, look at the time he spent guarding the the number one spots. Um, they, he'll be classified as going against wings, but we also know he's defending a lot from the point of attack. That is still concerning that the past two years, the Hawks have been demonstratively worse with him on the court and his net rating swing this year or their net rating swing. Sorry, I hate doing attaching it to one player. They're seventeen 17.4 points better per 100 possessions when he's off the court and they're 12.9 points per 100 possessions the, worse. The than- only
0: issue I have there is the confounding variable of Trey Young because Reddish hasn't played as much with Young. And I, we know that he causes a gigantic swing
1: for offense, the defense, the fact that you're worse defensively when your minutes are untethered from young, I agree with you offensively. I was actually going to make that point before you were just so rude, but actually astute about it. It was the fact that you've been worse defensively the past two seasons. And I didn't look at how much he was untethered from young last year, but this season there has been minutes where he's been just not playing alongside young, like a line share of the time and your defense is worse, like there's, everyone is culpable. It's not just him. I just think they were at the point where his value wasn't going to get any higher. And this just does lead me to believe that you were never getting a first round pick or you couldn't guarantee you were going to get a first round pick from a team at the deadline for him. And then you're in this situation where you either have to move him as part of a deal where he doesn't have as much value to other teams as this pick, or you go into the summer with, it's, you don't have to extend, like you can use restricted free agency to your advantage. Fine. But that's also sort of just a knock against his value is any team that acquires him now has to immediately turn around hmm. and pay him. So I don't know that this was the right move. I do think it was far more justifiable relative to the trade market than people are giving them credit for right now. I do stand to 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 change that stance if they do nothing at the trade deadline and that changes the the complexion of everything.
0: For what it's worth, I've shifted from like, a straight big red F to like a C minus or something. I, I still don't a- think it's a good move, but I, it, it it isn't this like glaring, awful mistake that it initially seemed to be.
1: Yeah. I would still like you. I, I said, my greatest TBD, I might go C even as high as a C here, which is fair value to me. You could point out why wouldn't you have moved him over the summer? Could you you've gotten more then? He was widely available across the league over the offseason. And so this is not a lack of due diligence on Atlanta's part. I don't think this is just they didn't search enough. They either held on to him too long or the market was really just not as frothy as people expected.
0: And the Hawks season has gone nothing like it was
1: expected to. They are the most disappointing team in the league because you could see the Lakers issues yeah. coming for the most part. Even Boston has been like sad sack, but you also, you know, there were clear. I know people touted their depth kind of, but like there were clear issues with um, right. their offensive structure even before coming into the year. So I think the yeah, Hawks by far I'm right there with you. are the most disappointing team from the Knicks perspective, though. And that's where we get into these questions from the, the dual Michael's. I'm going to answer them first. I do not think it's guaranteed that Cam Reddish flourishes in New York. And to me, I view this as more of a win now. It's a I think it's a decent flyer to make, but again, the fact that the Hawks made it leads me to be, leads me to believe that the Hornets pick had more value around the league, not to the Knicks, but around the league than Cam Reddish. And so you are resting a little bit of his value on rebooting it if you want to reroute him later or if you want to keep him and the And this issue of his role where he wanted to be on the ball more, the Knicks are not built for that to happen to him right now. They have RJ Barrett who's cooking at the moment. And I was a big fan of speaking of untethering minutes from your star. We need to see more of RJ without Julius Randle at points, although he's playing fantastic now um, to to see what he looks like on the ball. But isn't there an
0: implication with that statement that
1: Julius Randle is a star? Yeah, I didn't mean to call him. Julie Julius Randle's not a star. I apologize for <laughs> that. That was just... Seen enough,
0: I've seen enough angry texts from you over the last month or so that there's, I feel like I had to call that one out.
1: There's my retraction. Julius Randle's not a star. But <laughs> between Randall, when Rose is healthy, when Kemba is healthy, which I recognize neither of them are right now, you have Alec Burks. Like, you're not built to just give more on-ball touches away. If anything, you've only just started using, I don't want to say RJ Barrett properly, but giving him a real crack at working on the ball more. And that's because you don't have Derrick Rose or Cameron Walker. And Cam Reddish has not, let's be clear, Cam Reddish has not done enough to just warrant more on ball volume. That's just, that's without question. And even his off-ball shooting has been good. He's shooting 41.9% on catch-up threes, uh, catch-up, catch-and-shoot threes this year. Would you care to guess what he's shooting on off-the-dribble threes? Like 32%? 28.3%. That was pretty close. This is just not someone who has shown enough playmaking chops, enough off-the-dribble shooting. They certainly need to cut out the mid-range stuff. I do think you can have faith in him being better defensively with the Knicks, given how much R.J. Barrett has grown on that end.
0: And I think that's the key here, is that his presence also alleviates a little bit of that wing responsibility from Barrett, which allows him to plumb even more of his offensive game.
1: And that's why I viewed it as win now, by the way. Because what he does for you defensively, it allows you to just shape shift a lot more on that end of the floor than you could before because it's just like, there's weird data with who's defending the number one option just by nature of playing point guard in New York. But like you have, without Reggie Bullock, there was RJ Barrett and then Quentin Grimes has become part of the rotation in recent uh, weeks. And by the way, the Knicks wouldn't give up Quentin Grimes, who was a number 25 pick this past year for Cam Reddish. I do think that's something to consider as well amid all this Uh, because it's not like Quentin Grimes has been fun and a shot of adrenaline defensively when he's played, but the fact that they were saying that he's not worth the Reddish upside. I do think that could be a red flag there for Reddish, but I, I, I do believe in him defensively on the Knicks. I get why it's not working in Atlanta, even though was it effort-based, personnel-based, lineup-based? Is there just something there that I'm missing? He really should help their defense, which has been pretty poor this season. I just wonder if he's going to hurt you offensively in similar ways that he did for the Hawks, or are you already so blah offensively that it doesn't matter? But if you were going to get someone, if, if you were looking at him as an offensive asset, like to you, you either need someone who's going to put pressure on the rim as the primary ball handler, which Cam Reddish does not do, or just someone who is so clearly plug-and-play, which Cam Reddish does not want to be. And that's why I'm just wondering, in future trade negotiations, which is why I thought this was more about now, I do think, to the rest of the league, I'm not talking about the Knicks, If they wanted to make a trade, that Hornets pick is going to be more valuable for them than Cam Reddish at this moment. And the only way that changes is if you fully believe that he's going to reboot his his stock at both ends of the floor. I want to be clear. Even if he's great defensively, if he's still rough on the offensive end, now you're in this situation where he becomes an oddball fit offensively and you have to... R.J. Barrett's extension eligible this summer. Mitchell Robinson is a free agent. You're getting to the point where you need to invest in this younger-ish core, and Cam Reddish is all of a sudden among it, I'm very curious to see how they incorporate him offensively, how happy he is. And look, if there's more on-ball volume or skill there to plumb with Cam Reddish and they bring it out of him, power to them. I don't, I'm not prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt in doing that, though.
0: I fully agree with basically everything you just said. I think the only thing I would add is what happens when Julius Randle teases even more mid-range out of his game?
1: teases more mid-range out of cam reddish's game like more efficiency or just volume just more volume i will cry (laughs) and look it's not even going to be mid-range it's just going to be like long mid-range at least now with with reddish he is probably taking like a few more uh from the short i should really look that up before i say anything but probably taking more like of the i'll call them true mid-range attempts or short mid-range attempts yeah most of his mid-rangers come from uh between four and 14 feet like randall's gonna have him shooting like between 14 feet and the the three yeah
0: so it's a step closer to taking threes that's obviously a good thing so there you go that's how the improvement comes
1: uh but i'm i'm fascinated to see i really am fascinated to see his offensive fit i just don't think this was a no-brainer good move i don't even know do you think from their perspective like how would you grade it if you're if you're the knicks what are you giving them
0: probably like a c also just because i agree with you about the value of that that charlotte pick I think the one variable that it's been tossed around facetiously to some extent, I think on Twitter, but also seems to have like some validity is what if this does enable the Knicks to make more of a Zion Williamson play because RJ Barrett and Cam Reddish did both play with him at Duke. If there is any appeal whatsoever, because we already know that Zion seems to be a flight risk from new Orleans might have his eyes on New York because he said positive things about the organization and Madison Square also Garden it, in the past.
1: He also said that it was going to be RJ's team and lo and behold, it became RJ's team.
0: Yeah, so like, I know that it is mostly a joke, I think, but there might be like a kernel of truth there where this could be, at least in small part, a
1: recruiting pitch. I will say the Knicks, historically, are not above thinking that way. And that includes right. this front office. They were the front office that was in charge when the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving stuff happened. They're not above thinking that way. It would be the most fucking inane thing if that's how they were viewing this. Because at the most, let's assume, Zion becomes I, available. I, I'm, what is the pathway to getting Zion to New York without giving up one of, if not right. of <laughs> R.J. Barrett and Cameron right. right
0: now? No, I I mean... Obviously, I don't really think that there's too much validity to it, but I do think that there is enough of that kernel of truth that it's worth at least mentioning.
1: And again, I do think he helps them defensively. Oh, Mark Berman of the New York Post, by the way, reported this. I don't know if you saw that, but his sources told him that RJ and Cam didn't get along at Duke. (laughs) And I don't know how much stock to place in that. So I'm not going to place a ton of it, but food for thought. If we're, going to, if we're going to say, oh, is this a recruiting pitch for Zion? Then we have to at least place some value in that report. Two, and the final thing I'll say on this, which is what really concerns me about this move, is Cam Reddish wasn't great offensively at Duke because he had to be shoehorned into the type of role yeah. the Hawks were asking to play him now. And the Knicks probably need him to play now. So I just, I what is good about this, is it's not a huge swing. And there is a chance, I don't think it's likely, but there is a chance that Hornets pick turns into two seconds by 2025. Let's just like this. I think there's a serious chance of that. that You're effectively saying that they will be a lottery team by then, which feels absurd because of LaMelo. But like Gordon Hayward's going to get older. He's been good. I was wrong about the contract. I always thought the fit was good, but I thought the contract would look heinous after year two. We're in year two. It does not. So I was wrong about that. But
0: it's, to me, it's less about the personnel and more about the, the temporal distance where like a lot can change really quickly in the NBA.
1: And that and would be another reason- Protecting make, a
0: pick that far out is always a, a dangerous proposition.
1: And that would be another reason to make that move is if you don't, let's say you don't think it's going to convey by 2024. You've just internally decided as an organization. So you don't know what's going to happen in 2025. Would you rather have this year and a half of Cam Reddish getting a flyer on someone who has shown in the past that he could be good defensively and has had, do we call them like offensive, like fleeting exam, like instances of just flashes in the pan would be the best way to call it? Or would you rather have two seconds? And so they've made that evaluation. Maybe I don't agree, but that's a fair way to look at it. So I don't think this is a bad trade by the Knicks. I was surprised at how many people just thought it was a flat out home run. Maybe they're really high on that Brooklyn 2015 second round pick. So, but I think it was, I think it was justifiable bordering on good, but I I don't think it was absent like complexity or potential pitfalls is just what I'm getting at.
0: I think I'm at like a C- for Atlanta and a C-plus for New York. I don't think it's a a great trade for either team, but I do think that that C-plus for New York carries significant more upside where Atlanta's hinges on a subsequent trade that we don't know will happen and we don't know if it will be a good move if it does. Whereas for New York to hit on this trade, it just needs a top 10 pick who is still 22 years old to show more of the potential that we've already seen
1: in fleeting bursts. If when we do trade deadline grades, or at least when I do it, whether it's you or a guest, it'll be, I'm anxious to revisit this from Atlanta's perspective than the Knicks. The Knicks is just, yeah. I don't, you didn't acquire him with the intention of rerouting him because of he can really only be traded singularly at this point, not as part of this other package. So. Uh but i'm I tried to lay out Atlanta's thinking, we'll have to see we'll know by three p m February 10th, whether that is yep. where they were headed. And look, if they don't do anything after this, I will absolutely brutalize their thinking here. I guess you could still view that pick as valuable in the off season, but like that pick cannot be in Atlanta or used in a trade that's just as seemingly marginal as this one. It needs to be as part of like a bigger consolidation swing. yep, totally agree. Let's move on to some other questions, see how many we can blow through here in the next 20 or so minutes. Um, Michael J. also asks, can the Grizzlies get the number one seed in the entire NBA? Now, I want to I let you know how, how many games they are away from that number one seed. They're, only, they're five losses back of the best record Phoenix Suns at this moment. They're only three games back overall of the best record in the NBA. They have, by the way, this means that they have moved ahead of the Jazz in the standings at this moment, just in case anyone was...
0: I feel different. like a Rudy Gobert absence might have had something to do with that. I mean, my, yeah. my answer is no. Like, <laughs> you want to talk about feels... COVID
1: brain? Me listing Donovan yeah. Mitchell ahead of Rudy Gobert on my uh, MVP ballot, I, just, I don't even know what I was thinking there. It was immaterial because it was so low, but i just like to clarify Rudy Gobert is the, the MVP of the Jazz. Please go ahead, though.
0: I feel like we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with the Grizzlies if we're thinking that they're going to be the number one overall seed. This is clearly a very good team. It has a lot of chemistry. It has a lot of good pieces. You know, We've said before that if you're interested in the most improved player rate, race, you can basically, or like a breakout player, you can basically throw a dart at the Memphis roster and you're going to hit one. Um, John Morant is amazing, deservedly working his way onto the periphery of the MVP conversation. But that is not an absurd thing to say. It is not not an absurd thing to say. say. And it is reductive
1: to imply otherwise.
0: I agree. Uh, It's still, it feels a little bit early. You know, we don't really see teams take that big a year over year leap. Like you do have to go through the steps to work your way up to being a true contender. If you just look at the teams surrounding them, we have the Warriors who still have a two and a half game advantage over Memphis and are reintegrating Clay Thompson. You know, that was always going to come with a little bit of a, a struggle in the immediate return because you have to, to reestablish the chemistry. You have to reestablish the offensive hierarchy. Uh, it was going to take time, and they have that cushion and so much talent. The Phoenix Suns, like, what, what reason do we have to believe that they're going to, you know, fall three and a half games back when they're flat-out rolling? The Jazz only a half game back of Memphis right now, again, after that Gobert absence, I just I don't really see I don't really see enough to believe that this ascension is going to continue in its in the rapid state that we've seen to this point. This is clearly a team that is going to be able to beat any given organization on any given night. Stringing those together for the entirety of the second half of the season is another thing in and of itself. I, I don't think the metrics back this up either. If you look at net rating if you look at simple rating system which incorporates strength of schedule if you look at the four factors like there there are indicators that memphis is playing a little bit above its head and still not quite reaching the level of these other western conference juggernauts so in the mix for home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs apps to fucking lootly in the mix for the number one seed i think that we're getting ahead of ourselves
1: yeah. And I do think that they're a team that should look at buying at the deadline is the only thing I'll add. I Memphis Twitter has become kind of funny where it's like, we're not giving up Zaire Williams and a first round pick for miles Turner or somebody else. Like we gotta, I understand why Desmond Bain would be untouchable. I understand you want to move Jaron Jackson to John Morant, but if you want to get better, you need to give up stuff. And I think they are good enough, especially over their past 20 plus games to be like, Hey, look where we are let's try and make it doesn't have to be miles turner i actually like his fit in memphis other people do not i understand they should be buyers and, and i don't mean just can we get cam reddish for a fake first round pick buyers i mean real let's cannonball into this buyers if the opportunity presents itself so and i don't think that would make them the number one seed i'm still going to pick the warriors and the sons to both finish in front of them i'm even going to pick the jazz to the finish jazz in front of them, i think there's just something about memphis's offense they live in transition john moran is great they need more every level threats, is the best way for me to put it. And I don't, outside of John ja Morant, like, and I would say John ja Morant and Desmond Bain are their two best multi level scoring threats. And just there aren't. I, go ahead. I was gonna, speaking of Morant,
0: like, that's the other reason here is if they do end up as the number one seed, that is terrible news for the postseason because the amount of energy that John ja Morant would have to expend to get this team into that position, that is not. The proper use of that exertion.
1: Counterpoint, and I know that they are over this, they're 20 and four over their last 24 games as we record this. They are 11 and two during that time without John Morant. If they finish with the number one seed in the Western Conference and John Morant is playing in basically every game from now until then, my counterpoint would be John Morant might, might win MVP. So maybe it's good for John Morant because I wouldn't pick them to win the title. There's not a move.
0: I just, I don't think it would, it would be good for John Moran. It wouldn't necessarily be good for the subsequent playoff race.
1: That's I mean, my only who, point. Who knows what the league looks like at that point now? The Warriors, they're, they're injured and, and can't score at the moment. So maybe it's a good thing.
0: And I can't emphasize enough that these answers are not knocks against Memphis, which is very clearly a high-level basketball club.
1: We I'm sorry. This is, if anything, it's a huge fucking compliment. And I've been, this is a third year running where I picked them to not make the playoffs. And I'm just going to completely be wrong about Memphis all the time. The fact that they were in the discussion, and I do think it was warranted because they did do the, Stephen Adams has worked out well for them. He's been a much better fit than I thought. Tipping Savant with them, by the way. But the thought process behind the Valentinus adams trade made me think like they're kind of rebuilding. They have obliterated expectations. We're asking if they could finish number one in the league. Not, can they make the playoffs? Can they and make it's, the not, it's, and the it's not
0: a bad question. It's a legitimate question right now, given the momentum they have. No, I just, just I don't think saying, that, I think it's a clear answer. I don't think it's a bad question.
1: I don't think it's a bad question, but I'm saying the clear answer is not an insult because the fact that we're even right. asking the question says a ton. We have another Knicks question, comes from Wayne Lefsky, asks, I feel like analytic-wise, RJ Barrett has always been eh, at best. He is correct, by the way. These passing weeks, He's been playing his best basketball, and I was wondering if the analytics reflect that as well. I think what a lot of people look at is when they're talking about analytics are more of the team stats, like if it's the net rating swing, whatever. RJ Barrett over his last eight games is averaging 23.4 points, three assists, 5.6 rebounds if you care about that, shooting 41.3% from three, under 70% at the foul line. He's getting there, but this dude's foul shooting is not great. Uh, And he's better than 50% of his twos. The Knicks have still been outscored by an average of four points per game with him on the court. A lot of that has to do with the one uh, Boston game, the Boston game, but he was also consecutive minus 15s in the loss to Oklahoma city and Detroit. Now they didn't have Julius Randle for Oklahoma city. And then previously overall in the season, the Knicks are getting outscored by an average of 2.4 points per game with him on the court. These are not like brain bending numbers. I just, the Knicks are so confusing and I think their starters, even with RJ Barrett playing like this, they are at a nightly disadvantage almost every game. And so that's going to skew a lot of the the kitchen sink metrics. I will say what this has proven to me, I'm probably somewhere in the middle on RJ Barrett. When you look at Knicks fans and then people that aren't Knicks fans, there's more to dig into with him on the ball. And I think that that's become absolutely clear. And I do think that's a long, if they ever get the full strength or even a, a facsimile of it, and primarily with Julius Randle, I just I think that his growth is going to be capped, if not just outright stunted. And that is, that's where I'm at.
0: Barrett, to me, feels like one of those classic players where he is always going to be a little bit shortchanged because of the difficulty of the role he's asked to fill on both ends of the floor, really, where he is tasked with guarding number one options with a wide variety of defensive assignments. And then he does have a difficult shot selection, basically out of necessity. Because teams need players like that. And I think it's why we see so many veterans and so many retired players caping for these guys like Jamal Crawford, like Kyrie Irving, who they're so ridiculously talented hitting those difficult shots that not many players can can actually reasonably attempt, much less make, that the difficulty drags down the analytics, but also increases their perception among their peers. And I think Barrett, to me, Kind of falls into that same category. I'm not comparing him to Kyrie Irving or Jamal Crawford so much as saying that, like, what he is asked to do, he's asked to do it because of his skill set that not a lot of players are able to muster up. So, yeah, like, he's going to have some struggles, some negative plays within that role, but the fact that he's filling that role in and of itself is a big deal. And we're seeing that more and more. So, I don't know that it's necessarily reflected in the analytics. We're seeing the The basic counting stats improve we're seeing some of the percentages improve we're seeing some of the advanced metrics improve but to me the difficulty of that role and the importance that he has to the knicks supersedes all of the all of that growth
1: yeah and look i would argue his problem at least on offense was role obscurity actually for most of the year but he it's also at fault to him because he was so not these past eight games, but he's generally just been so inconsistent when it comes to attacking the basket, not letting his game stall out before the rim. Could still stand to improve as a finisher overall. Getting to the foul line a lot more often over these past eight games, so those are all good signs. I think what I think some consistency in the the role archetype that he's assuming would go a long way. And even then, I don't know how it pans out. But I think he's now showing enough to be like, hey, we actually need to. He's extension eligible this summer. It's time to really get into the depths of his yeah. his offensive skill set. Next question comes from, this is the outdated one. So I wanted to shout it out from Fibles Wingspan. Uh, Thank you for DMing it to me. I meant to answer it on the last solo mailbag, but I skipped all the DM questions. I had COVID feel bad for me. That's my excuse for everything now. He asked, who's a better duo long-term as second and third options when looking at Collins um, Collins and Reddish or Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr.? But we can change this, and he even mentioned it too. Who's better, John Collins and DeAndre Hunter or Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain long-term? We have to change it out of necessity wow. now, but I thought it was a fascinating question.
0: It's a really good one. I'm going to I'm gonna go with the Memphis duo just because of the growth that we've seen from Desmond Bain, where it feels like we can be more and more confident that pigeonholing him as a 3 and D prospect was shortchanging him. He is so much more than that. There is a malleability to his game on both ends of the floor that enables him to fill a lot of different roles. And we're also... At the same time, seeing what a healthy Aaron Jackson Jr. can do, you know that it's always been a tantalizing package as that true floor-spacing big man, the shot-blocking big man who can just do everything. Now that he's healthy, now that Memphis is thriving, we're seeing that package. You know, the the day we're recording this, the Grizzlies' Twitter account tweeted out you know, some of his stats over the last four games and how they were unmatched and how he deserves some All-Star recognition, which I think is a uh, overselling him a little bit because it's not just a recognition of four games, but it still speaks to the level at which he's playing right now. So John Collins is so exciting. Also a huge beneficiary of playing with Trey young who really makes his game go because of the pickle that Trey young always puts opposing defenders in covering the pick and roll with him and Collins. I don't know that Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. are as dependent on key teammates to elevate their level of performance.
1: I'd argue just Jaron Jackson Jr.'s floor spacing is so important to opening the yes. floor for everyone else on the Grizzlies. And I would agree with everything you said there. And really the tipping point, you could look at DeAndre Hunter's health, but then there's Jaron Jackson Jr. missed a ton of time uh the previous two seasons. The tipping point for me, clearly, whether you looked at it as reddish or Hunter, and I think people would probably prefer Hunter in a vacuum to Reddish anyway. So this might act this might be the right question to begin with. Desmond Baines on ball development, that they really you know, it's tough to glean real insight from summer league, but they started this in Vegas with him. And a lot of it is translated to this season. His growth offensively there, I think really just makes this, I don't know if it's a no brainer because I do appreciate John Collins's scalability across basically both ends of the floor. At this point, he can't anchor your defense, but he's also not going to be the one that torpedoes it. And then I like all the holes he can fill on offense, even though he seems to not maybe appreciate that he wants to have a larger responsibility there. I, like, I don't know how, I don't know that there's a clear case for Atlanta's duo compared to Memphis's duo after the season we've seen. And Jared Jackson Jr.'s I, there's still stuff I want to see from him on both sides of the floor, including on offense, but he's improved. He's under more control defensively this year. And I think you can trust him to play the five. Additionally, he works as the four and seems just more comfortable and higher IQ on that end in general.
0: My follow-up question is, of those four players, who's your number one in a vacuum?
1: Woo. It's weird that John Collins might be the best player of that bunch for me?
0: No, I don't think so. Is it I weird th- that I might take Desmond Bain long-term
1: over all of them? Long-term, okay. It's fair to... Right now, though, it's probably between Collins and... I think and- it's Collins right now. Long-term, I, I see the case for Bain. I need I, to see this happen again next season. The same type of on-ball yes. stuff and even the, the little defensive improvements. Uh, looking at his like positional spectrum that he's able to go up against. But, yeah, it's... Who who are you lowest on of this group long term?
0: Probably Hunter.
1: Yeah, I'm with you there. A lot of it's the health.
0: I, I think it's it's partially the health and partially just the inconsistency. Even when he is healthy, like we've seen that he can be this defensive stalwart. We've seen that he can put the ball on his floor and put the ball on the floor and create his own shots. But then the next day, he looks awful doing either of those things, and I just I don't know that I, I trust the across-the-board development enough to be confident that he's going to be more than a specialist down the road.
1: Let's get to this question from Milky Ernie. What potential trade target gives Phoenix the best shot at making a return finals appearance, Eric Gordon, Thad Young, Jeremy Grant, or Ben Simmons?
0: a wide variety of players i think
1: look um, i don't i don't gonna, love
0: the ben simmons fit i'm gonna rule that out right off the bat because i just i don't want to see him with chris paul and devin booker like i just i don't think that makes sense
1: and push back there because the role that devin booker has played and thrived in this season but i do see your point also the equity this is not a team that should be giving up the equity in a three or four team deal to, to get ben simmons you're, you're talking right. cam johnson gone every future pick you have gone. DeAndre Ayton probably gone because you're not going to give up. Mikael Bridges is so tough to trade after his extension. So it would be between Eric Gordon, Thad Young, and Jeremy Grant.
0: I like the Eric Gordon fit a lot here. Just the additional floor spacing that he brings, the ability to put some pressure on the rim. You know, we talked about it on a previous episode that he can set up well beyond the arc and add even more spacing, which I think is important for this team. And... It probably, I I think Jeremy Grant is my number two here, but I feel like it's going to take more to get Grant than it does to get Gordon, which I think has to factor into the answer here.
1: The other thing is it's Gordon for me. It's not even close. I think Jeremy Grant is officially a terrible fit for this team just because they need their primary move, which would cost whatever assets, needs to bring back someone with more ball skills. And I know he's shown it in Detroit at points. I don't know that we could trust it enough to say this is someone you bestow ball handling responsibility to in the playoffs and his three-point shot is still just like choppy enough looking at the efficiency where it's not knocked down and with eric gordon specifically i don't think this is a deal break look the suns are my title pick so if any suns fans are listening to this i'm not dumping all over them they're now dead last in the frequency with which they get to the rim on offense the the smallest share of their shots fewer than 25 percent I um, mean, everyone else in the league, by the way, is getting at least 26.6% of their attempts at the rim this year. Phoenix is at 24.9. That is you're built around Devin Booker and Chris Paul. It's fine. I get it. It really kind of hurt you once you got to the finals against Milwaukee and Eric Gordon's rim pressure that with the spacing that Phoenix can provide him with looking at their personnel in certain lineups. I understand the need. Maybe you'd want to go more small ball five just for certain. I mean, but even DeAndre Ayton is, I don't know if he's matchup proof, but like, are you scared of playing DeAndre Ayton? He's, a- he's the
0: Bucks? pretty matchup proof at this point.
1: I was going to say, you're not worried about playing DeAndre Ayton at the five if the Bucks no. are using Giannis at the five. That's just not something that's going to no. intimidate you. So I think it's Eric Gordon. And I don't know if they have the juice to get him because if he commands a first round pick, it's just tough. They can't trade one until 2024. I did come up with a fake trade. I'll throw it out really quick where they ended up giving up Jalen Smith. Dario Saric, Abdel Nader, Alfred Payton, they're 2024 first and two seconds. It got them back, Kenrich Williams and Eric Gordon. I would do that deal in a heartbeat, even though people are all of a sudden just higher on Jalen Smith. Let's move on to the final couple questions. I want to focus on the DM ones that we got, since again, I skipped over them last time. Chris asks, at the current moment, which players are making the best case to become an all-star for the first time in their career? I'm going to rattle them off and I want you to pick one. And if I forget anybody, but I know you're doing this off the cuff. You have yep. Fred Van Fleet. You have Jared. Right there. Okay. Stop. <laughs> I w- he would be my pick. That's the yeah. obvious answer, right? It's, it's not because John Morant exists.
0: John Morant plays in the Western Conference, which has such a ridiculous backcourt s-
1: selection. Well, the, who does it this year? It's between him and Donovan Mitchell. I don't know if he'll get it for starters. But I mean, John Morant is going to make the All Star team. Correct. One hundred percent certain.
0: But Fred Van Vliet is even more than 100% certain.
1: Okay. So relative to his conference, for sure. But would you say John Morant's... Fred Van Fleet's defense is just so damn good. But would you say that John Morant... Fred Van
0: everything is so damn good. Yes, John <laughs> Morant has been better.
1: Fred Van Vliet, John Morant would be the names that spring to mind. There's also Jared Allen, Darius Garland to consider.
0: I think both of them should make the team. But they are less likely to because name recognition factors into this and coaches are more likely to give the nods to the players who aren't just breaking out for the first time this season. They van fleet is a fairly established product. We knew that he was really good last year. He wasn't at this level, but Jared Allen was a question mark. Darius Garland was a question mark. Do they deserve inclusion? Absolutely. But they're not going to be voted in as starters, which means it hinges on the coaches selections and we know how that goes historically.
1: And also they're not no, aside from John Moran, like these other players are no brainers. So let's do this. We'll say-
0: I actually think Jared Allen is a no brainer inclusion just from an analytics and value standpoint. But when we actually factor in what goes into the, the formation of the teams, he's no longer a no brainer.
1: So let's do this. We'll go through the first all-star candidates. Are they going to be a first all-star or not? I'm going to run through them with you. Fred Van Fleet. Absolutely. I'm with you on yes. John Moran. Absolutely, Jared Allen. You have to. I'm going to say yes. I think. I think
0: yes. I think he will get in.
1: I'm going to say yes with him too. Darius Garland. I'm going to say no,
0: unfortunately, unless unless he's an injury replacement. You know, I think we have to
1: consider expand the rosters. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of Dejounte Murray,
0: no, too much depth in the Western Conference. He deserves. He deserves mention. He 100% deserves to be in this conversation, but because we're still stupidly not expanding the all-star rosters, he will not get in.
1: You want to pick the, uh, should we do the injury replacement team? Uh, John Collins. No, not a chance. Yeah, I do think he's been better than people give him credit for, so not a chance is rude, but it's not. a Trey
0: no, Trae Young is a lock, and, and Atlanta is not going to get a second all-star wall below 500.
1: I don't. I hate that logic, by the way. I, I also, do too. I don't think he's a no-brainer. I'm not, I'm
0: not saying who should be. You asked me who is going to.
1: This is my final, yes. This is the final one that I have, and maybe you have more, but LaMelo Ball would be the other one. I said DeJounte Murray, right? He's a no for me. He did.
0: Of uh, yeah, I mean, I think LaMelo Ball fits into the same category as DeJounte Murray, where he deserves to be in the conversation. I don't know that he's going to make it in.
1: I'm sure people are going to be mad that we didn't mention Mikael Bridges, but he's a no insofar as you think that he even like deserves to be. Right. I'm trying to, I'm trying to look through here. and DeAndre Ayton well, would be a no for me too. Jalen Brunson is a no, though he's made a very compelling case over the past like, month or so. I think, I think Ayton has a chance.
0: Phoenix is good enough that it could very much justify getting three in. Uh, anyone else who stands out? Tyrese Halliburton. It's not happening. Not happening deserves deserves mention not happening
1: um deserves mention when you start talking about the if they expand oh, oh no
0: here's the... here's one more Andrew Wiggins
1: no oh my god why
0: because why? it keeps getting floated as a possibility <laughs> and he might get he might get in on the back of the fan book
1: i do look i've been very impressed with his defense overall and just i the... don't
0: think he do, i don't think he belongs in that conversation but i i think that it would be incomplete to not mention him
1: there is i just he's been good but like we need to i think we might even be guilty of it at this point where we're naming tyrese halliburton we got to stop doing this thing where it's like this player is good so does he deserve to be like one of, right. one of the, the top 12 players in the west even though yeah. positions matter a little bit desmond bain. yes desmond bain can and should get in and will get in
0: robert williams
1: hoop informatus asked. I've reached the point of Seth, this is a big question. I thought it was fascinating. I've reached the point of Seth Partnow's book where he talked about what's next in analytics and he discusses audio analytics as being the future. Data on who is talking more and how clearly. Mike De La Rosa also recently released a video on Thinking Basketball's YouTube page illustrating Minnesota's defense and the impact D'Angelo Russell is having on team defense by being a rover and communicator, which all leads me to the actual question at hand. Who do you believe are the best defensive communicators in the NBA and how much value should communication be given on this impact of team defense now this was a thinker so i went out it's a and,
0: great question i yeah, I, I, have
1: a, I have an immediate answer oh i was i was gonna i actually asked a coach about this not an nba coach but huh. i
0: asked. you asked spinella
1: friend of the pod coach spins yeah um who coaches the answer is draymond green though. could you let spins have his moment at spinella? no
0: absolutely not
1: 14 here's what <laughs> he said though i thought what i thought was the interesting answer about how important is defense communication in general? Spins said, vital to everything that happens in the final two minutes of a close game. People forget that communication also equals listeners, guys who can be told to do something and react, adapt to what their teammates need or their in-game changes are. You named Draymond Green, which was the first name he listed. I want to see if you can name, he named four other people. I want, you named five other people. I want to see how many of them you can get. I definitely can't. Okay, there's four, and he can't. One of them is. I'm re- going to put Kyle Lowry. Okay, one. So you're two for two on what been listed Draymond and Kyle Lowry.
0: Fred Van Vliet. No. Hmm. <sighs> wow. Um, so, Embiid? Them, is Embiid up there? No. Embiid is trash talking the entire time. On he's trash talking, but he's also very demonstrative. <laughs> like, it might not be as much verbal communication, but I feel like he's still gesticulating and gesturing and all sorts of things to get people in the right spots
1: i th- i feel like there's one semi-obvious one you're still missing because the first two names that came to mind the first three are on this list and you named two of them already i know
0: Giannis has been a big communicator lately Saw him i'm just thinking out i'm loud. not
1: saying he's bad these are just the names that spins
0: jimmy butler comes to mind looking at a list now all right, you... You've Lonzo explained. Ball is, no. is really communicative, but probably less impactful from the point guard position.
1: So I do think you're missing one obvious one. <laughs> I blame COVID for that cough. Chris Paul <coughs> was the other one. He was... That's fair. What I found interesting, I didn't show him the actual question. Spins came up with D'Angelo Russell. So Hoop Informatics... Wow. ...was talking about D'Angelo Russell, and then Spins wow. mentioned D'Angelo Russell. He also, the... Two other names he had. One of them is no longer in the NBA. Marc Gasol. So he, I think you would have gotten him. And he, yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. This one, I agree with. After thinking about it, like realizing what we've watched the past, let's just say the past like two seasons, whatever. DeAndre Ayton.
0: I don't see it as much because I think it's harder to fill that role when you're on the same team as Chris Paul.
1: The I think if you watch him though, and his hands. Just watch his hands and watch his schmance. Watch his hands in the half court for possessions when Chris Paul is on or off the court. Just watch them.
0: It's a really cool question.
1: That was a great question, from asked. Look, we're probably not even qualified to answer it. So thank you to Adam Spinella for pitching in there. Last very couple ones here. I think that did us. I think we're good on the the DM one or no? Oh no, yeah, I asked that one. Da da da. Okay, so. Man, this is a. Oh, let me do this one very quickly because I looked it up. Chris asks, what is Tyrese Halliburton's effective field goal percentage in the last three minutes of the third and fourth quarters? I could not narrow it down to the.
0: I don't know that off the top of my head.
1: (laughs) I I don't know it off the top of my head either. He is shooting. His effective field goal percentage is 56.2 in the entirety of third quarters, 53 in the entirety of the fourth quarter. It is 52.8 in the final three minutes of clutch time, it is 55.6 in one possession crunch time during the final three minutes so still pretty efficient um that was a very one of the more specific niche questions that we have gotten i will say
0: i'm all for anything that props up tyrese halliburton who should be in the all-star conversation in the west because the roster should expand to at least 15 players per conference sorry i uh, i couldn't help myself there
1: and these will be our final two i'll bookmark the other ones for for next time this one is actually fairly topical i think zach asked should the wizards trade or build around bradley Beal? You would would think that
0: we have you would think that we have a firm answer at this point because he's been floated in these conversations for so much time. But I still just I'm on the fence because I feel like there's there is more potential in Washington right now than it feels like there has been in a while, just with this current core. But I still don't think that if the end goal is competing for a title that you're not going to get there with this core, which means to me in a championship or bust evaluation, which I think is a little bit of a corrosive mentality, but that's a topic for another time. But if we do operate with that mentality, then yeah, you should probably still move him.
1: What's interesting. I don't think, I don't think they should build around him. I also don't think they should trade him anymore. And my logic here would be, would be this. What is his value? heading into free agency this summer. Now, if you were going to move him, it should have happened over the offseason or better yet before last year's trade deadline, when it became clear that your team was in like this weird direction, even, you know, if you could, could have forecasted like their, their mid-year uptick at this point, I think just because he's still on the right side of 30, signing that extension probably gives him more value once, um once he's allowed to be moved again. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. where I'm at with them is you almost have to resign him now. And then, go back, go into next season or whatever. Maybe you don't even go in and go into next season, see how you're faring and then make the call. Then I think you ultimately, if, if it's champ, if it's a championship thing, I don't think giving Bradley Beal a max deal as your top guy is going to win you a championship or give you a clear path to one, unless did Denny Avia and Rui Hachimura both just explode because the Wizards and and look, the Wizards could be a solid team with Bradley Beal better than this. They started off hotter this season. Maybe they can make moves on the margins, I don't think the answer is to rebuild. And if you're going to rebuild around Bradley Beal, it's a rebuild around Bradley Beal. Tear it down to the studs of him and Denny Avia, yep. basically. Yep. And if Daniel Gafford, fine. Whatever, Adam. I see you looking at me weird. I'd I like to don't... change my answer
0: to all of what you've said.
1: Fair enough. But I think you get more value by re-signing him and looking to move him later. I also think with him, maybe he wanted to stay in Washington. I think we're at the point where players have decided, I want to get these extensions, and then I'll figure out a way yeah. to leave later, if need be. I couldn't agree more the final question from Cade are the Raptors a threat what are the chances they win their division the Eastern Conference how are they defining threat and also they're not going to win their division because the Nets exist is the only thing I'll say
0: yeah I mean I think that Toronto is a reasonable threat to make the playoffs and potentially pull off a first-round upset I don't know how much further I would go than that, but we, the infrastructure in Toronto is so strong. You can count on Masai Ujiri making a smart deadline move that is going to improve his team's chances both in the short and long term. Fred Van Fleet offers them an all-star who can carry the team on a semi-nightly basis. Scotty Barnes is only going to continue improving. There, are, There are pieces in place for this team to be really dangerous. I don't know that there is the reliable night in night out carry an organization talent necessary to make it through the Eastern conference playoffs. That includes a resurgent Chicago bulls franchise. That includes a big three. That's going to be available for half of the playoff games. That includes a motivated Miami heat team that includes Giannis Antetokounmpo. I just, I don't see them getting through that gauntlet, but I could very much see the Raptors putting a scare into some teams
1: in the playoffs. I mean, with everything you said there, I think they're one point of attack weapon short of being a real problem. And if you look at their record or how they performed at the beginning of the season, there's just so much of a difference to the way they've been playing lately. I know they've beat up on some teams that didn't have guys. That's the, the story of this entire fucking shit show of a season. With having at OG Ananobi, Fred Van Fleet, and Pascal Siakam all available, it changes the way your offense is allowed to operate where you don't need OG to do as much on the ball and that's just better suited. For him. And OG has been shooting so well from three. It's another outlet in terms of spacing for Siakam and Fred Van Fleet. I think Gary Trent Jr. is a more dynamic offensive player than people give him credit for. There is, there, Scotty Barnes has shined for not just moments, but like long stretches on that end. But they do need just like an additional ball handling attacker. But the fact that they're sort of already that close, given where they were, not where they were, because they had the talent and just weren't healthy or able to play at home last year. But just given what happened last season, and a lot of a lot of people thought they were candidates to blow it up. Now, I would actually say, I wouldn't trust their offense. But like they are defensively, like they could really give a Brooklyn or a Milwaukee, and definitely a Chicago or a Miami problems in a first round series. If the if the, if the playoff bracket was set right now, it'd be Bulls and Raptors in the first round. I'm sure you would pick Chicago, as would I. I. I'm not, okay. Good. I'm not sure that I would pick Chicago in that. And if I did, it would probably be like a Bulls and seven situation. Maybe I'm underestimating how much the offensive hierarchy in Toronto would be impacted in a post season setting because they will ugly up half court sets like they need second chance points, they need to catch air balls or whatever. but like their offense is not as bad as people expect in part because they make a lot of those second chance opportunities and they they do have real talent. But to say that they're that type of you know point of attack weapon and I don't even think it needs to be like a co star It'd be nice if it was, but someone to come off the, like if a Karis Levert was coming off their bench, I might think that this team is just ready, not to make it out of the East, but be super real problems. And I will finish with this. I think they probably need to be buyers at the trade deadline now. You're holding or you're buying. I'm not, Toronto's not a seller's candidate. Not.
0: I know, I don't know, Van I don't, I don't know who you would sell.
1: Well, because people look at it and say, oh, you want to rebuild around Adenobi and Barnes. They're the future. Trent's still young. Siakam and Van Fleet, I think, are 28. And they're at their the peaks that they're going to operate at right now or they're in the, the firm part of their prime and you know, their best days are going to be behind them when Barnes has his best days and OG maybe has his best days. That's the mode of thinking for a team that isn't good and can't do anything now. The Raptors just don't fit that criteria. They're, I think they're ready to make I think they will be a top six team in the East. I predicted at the beginning of the year in the preseason, they would be better than the Knicks, which tells you how uneasy I was about the Knicks uh, leading into the season. I think they will be a top six team in the East though. I have them, I have them in that, that conversation.
0: And beyond that, I think that, you know, every year there's that one team that no one really wants to play in the playoffs. This is that team in the East.
1: Atlanta could have that potential. Like you don't want to have to face them. For sure. I think the Raptors have sh- shown more this season than Atlanta for sure.
0: I also think that typically the team that qualifies most for that is a defensive juggernaut rather than an offensive juggernaut.
1: That's a that's a good point. That's a great point actually. That will do it for us. We have other questions. I'll save them for the next mailbag whenever that is. Thank you for everyone who made it this far. If this is your first time listening or if you just have not done so, consider throwing us that permanent subscription wherever you get your podcast. We can be found on Apple, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Google, YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We come up. Throw us ratings and reviews on Spotify and iTunes. They, they help us a ton when you do that. Even if you have feedback, throw it in there, but throw us the five stars anyway. We are reading them. We do take them into account. Follow us on Twitter. Adam is at Frommel09. I am at Dan Favale, F A V A L E. And the show is at Hardwood Knox, which is also sometimes on Instagram when I remember to use it at Hardwood underscore Knox. Until next time, we leave with a shout out to the one, the only, the legend, the myth, Frank Milokina.